Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I'm so delighted today to have as my guest Professor Maggie Blackhawk of NYU Law School. Uh, Maggie went to UCLA undergraduate and graduated from Stanford Law School. She clerked, like I did, for both the District Court and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which I think is always a smart thing for law students to do. Um, she's a national expert in constitutional law, federal Indian law, and immigration. Um, her work has appeared in all the top law reviews, or most of them. She comes from the University of Pennsylvania before NYU, and I'm so glad you could join us today. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So you have a great piece forthcoming in the prestigious Supreme Court review on the McGirt, McGirt case. But before we get there, I was reading a lot of your work this week, and you wrote a piece called On Power and Indian Country that was so powerful and so moving and written in the way I think law review articles should be written, which was both with a lot of legal substance and passion and emotion. And you told a story in that piece about your first semester at Stanford and American history class. Could you tell the people listening about that story? Um, yes. So um, again, I uh, that the piece that you're referencing um, on power in Indian country, which of course is very um, is similar in structure to um, on power in the law. So the later article on McGirt that we're going to talk about in a second. That essay was um, invited by the Stanford Law Review um, as part of a larger issue on women in the law and asking them to write personal experiences um, in different aspects of the legal profession. And for mine, it was the academy. And there, I couldn't necessarily tell my story of being um, a woman in the legal academy, especially um, uh, in those later years, without telling the story about how I ended up um, looking to the legal academy as a as a profession, and so I started the story with um, uh, my time as a student at Stanford Law School in my first semester, and my experience going into Stanford Law School, and uh, the culture shock of of um, going into the law school and seeing the dearth of reference to Native peoples and Native America, and uh, specifically federal Indian law, the law that is passed by the federal government that regulates the relationship with tribes, which is, at least to my mind, pretty ubiquitous. Uh, it's an area of the law where the law recognizes Native people all over the place, but Stanford Law School didn't. Um, it wasn't uh, something that was taught in my first year classes. I actually didn't take uh, federal Indian law until I was in my third year, and it, at that time it was taught by a lecturer. And so, it was that experience over the course of those years that inspired me to see um, my future profession as trying to bring Indian country into the legal academy um, rather than uh, doing what I had intended to do, which is part of the reason I also clerked on the district court uh, to get back to that right. um, reference, right. was to litigate on behalf of tribal governments um, in a way to um, use the law to defend tribal sovereignty. And so uh, my experience in law school turned my life path towards the legal academy rather than working as a, as a litigator uh, on behalf of tribes. You mentioned two things in that piece. Um, one was that most of the con law casebooks, if not all of the con law casebooks, at least at the time, basically erased Native American law from the con law canon. Right. I mean. Yeah. So, so a couple of things. Yes. Um, and so they currently. So uh, when I was writing um, Federal Indian Law as Paradigm Within Public Law, which is a, an article I published in 2019 in the Harvard Law Review, 
I worked along with a research assistant to survey all of the con law casebooks. Um, and that was a project that came out of the fact that I was uh, assigned to teach constitutional law, first 1L constitutional law by my recent employer, <laughs> Penn Law School. And I um, went about trying to figure out, okay, well, which casebook should I teach on? Which is, you know, every new professor, okay, let's go through all of them. And I was surprised, again, I, you know, I shouldn't be surprised at a certain point, that that's the real lesson of all of this. Um, <laughs> But I was surprised that there was no reference to Native people or, or um, even in the most hefty, um, so uh, Balkan Amar um, and uh, Siegel, I think, is the casebook that had uh, the largest reference to Native people, but it is also the longest casebook, and uh, it was a separate section. So it wasn't really a conversation that was integrated into conversations of federalism or the treaty power or other forms of um, constitutional history and theory to the extent that it was mentioned at all, um, which was very rare, uh, Native America and Indian country was um, separated out uh, and treated as just a, a sort of an afterthought. And one, one quick word on terminology, because I know my students spend half the semester trying to avoid the term federal Indian law. Right. Um, and they try to say Native that. American law, which is different. Yeah. So federal Indian law is law that is passed by the federal government to regulate Indians, which uh, in our constitution and in our law, so Title 25 of the U.S. Code is titled Indians, which to most people's ears, they struggle. They say, well, isn't this a slur? Um, and in some ways, for a long time, it really was. And uh, But it's also a legal category, like slave. So Indian, there, the, there wasn't an Indian out in the world, other than folks who lived within India, and even there, there's some controversy. But the, the term Indian is one that's been reclaimed over time by Native people to be seen as a point of pride. Um, but in law, it is a legal category, like slave. Um, right. And that's important uh, to reflect on. So what I was looking for was not law that's made by tribal governments or law that's made by Native Americans separate from uh, any uh, uh, structure within the United States, but law that is made by the federal government to regulate the category of Indians, which is a constitutional category. It's written in the United States Constitution and uh, that structures uh, an entire chapter of the U.S. Code and is ubiquitous throughout federal law. And so it's shocking, really, to not have that uh, present. <laughs> federal Indian law should be in federal federal law uh, two, somewhere. Two, two things about all that. First of all, the Siegel you referred to earlier was Neil Siegel, not Eric Siegel, just in case. Exactly. Yes, of course. Neil oh, and I are friends, but not related. Um, and second, you just solved a major problem for me because I have a social justice warrior 14 year old who harps on my every word to make sure I have everything exactly politically correct. And I'm just going to have to explain to her tonight about this Native American versus Indian thing. Thank you for educating me about that because she she will call me on it unless I know all about it. So it would be a lot like saying slave the law of slavery of human slavery would be African American law. Right, I get it. I get it, it just wouldn't fit there. Yeah. Like we we need to think about it as the way that it is, and it has been reclaimed and repurposed by Native people um, and been used very very successfully, um, but 
it's important to see that term, at least in the legal sense, for what it is, which is a it's a category within federal law and within our Constitution, um, and frankly, within the Declaration of Independence. Right. Um, it's it's everywhere. Well, that makes a lot of sense. All right, I want to talk about Mag this McGirt case that came down, huge case. Before we do, um, can you give a kind of quick layperson summary of erasure and what you what 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 you mean by that? Because that's a term that um, I'm only slightly familiar with, which is a sad indictment on me, my profession, and constitutional law. Um, but um, well, what do you mean by erasure? Yeah, so um, uh, erasure is a term uh, that has been developed by uh, theorists of Native American studies. Um, and it is uh, a complexity in the context of Native Americans um, and, in some ways, the racialization of Native Americans and the subordination of Native Americans um, that is unique in many ways to the context of American colonialism and the ongoing uh, colonial project. So it's something that still exists today. And uh, it functions like other forms of racialization and subordination as a means to try and prevent um, Native people from gaining power, from um, uh, structuring systems of anti-subordination and of uh, resistance. So erasure is a concept where within a dominant uh, community, within a dominant uh, public discourse vision of the world, um, Native people don't exist. Or to the extent that they do exist, they're on the verge of extinction. And that's something that, that's a narrative that's been happening for 500 years um, within North America, where Native people, to the extent that they are there, um, are on their way out. Um, yeah. Or they don't exist in the way that they uh, have existed in the past, such that they're not traditional enough for modernity, so they, um, they, they shouldn't be there. Um, they're, they're not where they're supposed to be. So that idea of erasure is uh, a lack of visibility of Native people as they currently exist today. That's oddly enough, and this is um, something that Native Studies scholars have studied as well, is the ubiquity of Native people. So you have Native American um, uh, people used in caricature or racialized terms as mascots, so sports teams. Uh, you have uh, languages or words that are borrowed from Native American languages that form um, state names and place names. Um, there is, uh, uh, I think, many really interesting studies about the structure of American cities and the way that they match onto um, uh, Native American uses of space uh, historically, and they continue to use that same um, use of past and space and uh, 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 the, the mapping of, of Native people in history. However, so aside, beside all of that um, ubiquity, so Thanksgiving, uh, there is this story of Native people disappearing uh, to the extent that Native people are recognized at all. And so that idea of erasure uh, keeps Native people from being legible uh, within history, so we don't have conversations about uh, Native right. people in the context of American history uh, and law. So we don't teach uh, law students about the current structure of the recognition of Native nations, the existence and governance of Native nations, and the history of American colonialism and what that has done to our constitutional framework, the structure of American political development and government, and the structure of American law at present. And so because of that erasure, um, it, you end up with um, uh, 
uh, subordination that's ongoing. So we can continue colonizing everyone because right. we don't talk right. about it. So people say, well, what is Puerto Rico? What's happening with the history of Hawaii? You know, we don't have that conversation um, and it's sort of erased from our public consciousness and that allows the project to keep going. We don't have to tussle with the problematic normative basis of those actions. As a lay person on this issue, um, just a couple of personal notes. Um, of course, I live in the city of the Atlanta Braves. I still don't understand how that's a thing. Um, and, and second, this is going to sound frivolous, but I don't mean it frivolously at all. I'm older than dirt. So when I grew up, I watched a show called F Troop that was on television. And, and I watched it a lot as a nine-year-old or 10-year-old, whatever I was. And the portrayal of Native Americans in that show, I'm sure the reason it's not in syndication is because, I hope, is because it's, it's such an awful portrayal. Um, but you know what affected me? You know, I was 10 and what I know. And, and, and we weren't learning anything in school about it. Um, so I, I, anyway, just so I, it's, it's the, 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 I guess the dichotomy between being either erased or being caricatured in the most horrible of ways is the worst of all worlds and in some senses. Does that make sense at all? Exactly. Yeah. So you have Frederick Jackson Turner is really the, the um, academic that most folks point to to talk about um, that other form of caricature. So to the extent that Native people are seen as present, they're there as the antithetical other yeah. that has shaped the American ethos through that savagery that confronted civilization and failed, right? So it, civilization um, pushed westward. This is the frontier thesis, the idea that the American frontier was itself the shaping of what made America, America. Right because you had the pioneer spirit, you know, this idea of going out in the last frontier and pushing westward, meeting savagery, and civilization dominates. Um, and so the idea that savagery has to give way is again part of that same story uh, that takes different forms in different eras. But at that point, the closure of the frontier in the late 19th century, the story around that was, okay, well, the savage native people that have, you know, enacted in violent terms against pioneers, all sorts of horrific acts need to give way to the goodness and the lack of violence of, um, uh, of uh, the United States. And again, that's also a narrative that took root. So that for the historians in the room, after the Civil War, this is one of the most violent wars in, uh, in American history. And what you had was a nation state that was trying to pull itself back together the story of the United States is really trying to hold itself together. And they were trying to pull together a national narrative. So Thanksgiving as a holiday, again, was reinvented at that time. It was not something that has been right. um, uh, celebrated regularly since the founding, but they were trying to create this we're peaceful people story, which is everything but true, uh, everything, anything but true. Um, and But the history was itself, American history of the frontier myth, Thanksgiving, this idea of we're peaceful, civilized people that are keeping out that violent savagery um, was the story that had to be told to create what was the United States. That's falsified history, of course, because the violence wasn't just in the Civil War, it was violence against Native women and children in mass forms. Um, you know, the, the laws of war did not apply to war with savages. And so the United States undertook um, 
uh, strategies within its wars with native people that were unheard of and incredibly violent. Um, but that was then erased through the erasure of native people or the depiction of them as that savage that would be expelled or um, uh, vanquished yeah. through the civilization and the peace of the American people. I haven't written at all about this, but I have written a lot about how America simply will not atone for its sins about race um, and, and African-Americans. And there's something about our culture where we just won't atone. And it's it's very problematic. But I want to get to McGurk. Um, so um, just as a kind of roadmap here, because we have some I could talk to you for a day and we don't we don't have a day. <laughs> we have about 30 more minutes. Um, there are two parts about McGurk I want you to kind of illuminate for our listeners. Um, one is just the, the facts and the background and the implications where I'm just going to agree with everything you say because I've already read your article. I do want, though, to leave time to talk about the broader lessons regarding, and, and my listeners won't be surprised that I'm going to have some issue with this, uh, the role of formalism and, and the rule of law, both at the court and in constitutional law generally, because I think you and I might disagree about that, which makes which is fun. Um, but, but, let's, but let's just go first to how monumental a case this was, the background, and I'll leave that to you. So go ahead. Yes. Yeah. So I'm going to jump to the background in a second. I did want to start from the premise that we may actually not be as far apart as okay. you may think. <laughs> okay. um, and that's because, and this is important, the institutional actor that we actually likely agree on that doesn't um, respond well to formalism and the rule of law is the Supreme Court. Um, and when I talk about the importance of formalism and the rule of law, it's largely and sadly in the context of Congress and the, and the administrative state rather than the court, which many have theorized is much more responsive to public opinion than it is to um, the application of the law as written. Fair enough. And also, now that you mentioned that before you begin, um, so actually, and we do agree, I just wrote a book review of Jamal Green's new book on rights. Um, yeah. Coming out of constitutional commentary, plug, plug. Um, Great book. I, uh, yeah, although I don't like his solution. I love Jamal. I, I don't like his solution for a lot of the reasons I think we, we agree on that part of it. That rights yeah. talk is, is not the way this country is going to ever proceed well, I don't think. But OK, go, go on with McGurk. Yes. And so um, I think it's, that's, a, that's a great segue of saying, well, McGirt has nothing to do with rights, right. <laughs> but it does have everything to do with justice and racialized communities and constitutional failure and the mitigation of those constitutional failures. But none of it is written in, the ter in terms of rights. And so it's often not easily translated. It was a case that wasn't actually picked up and celebrated by the progressive left uh, legal academy because they didn't know what to do with it. And they still don't. And so part of my um, approach to it was to try and translate the case into those terms of justice to where folks who were really interested in rights um, and racialized communities and um, constitutional wrongdoing and the mitigation of that might take interest in the case. So McGirt. So that case was issued after two terms. So this was unusual. Um, after two terms, the question in McGirt was answered by the Supreme Court in July of last year was actually, um, the court issued its opinion, I think like nine days before uh, my son was born. Um, so <laughs> I'm gonna remember this opinion. <laughs> uh, and, um, and so it, uh, there, the Supreme Court uh, resolved the issue of whether or not uh, the treaty that the United States had formed with the Muscogee Creek Nation in the 19th century had been abrogated by the Congress such that the reservation borders had been diminished. And there, the Supreme Court said, no, 
We looked at the history and Congress has not abrogated the treaty provision that set these borders. And so the borders are historically where they were written in this treaty. And so the treaty law stands as still good law. And they looked at all sorts of historical evidence to answer that. So of course everyone says, well, that's very cute and technical, but the big question there was that those historical borders encompassed large swaths of Oklahoma, including a huge portion of the city of Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the implications of McGirt, because the Muscogee Creek Nation are similarly situated to other Native nations within the borders of the current state of Oklahoma, um, it would mean that if you applied uh, McGirt to other Native nations, that uh, to potentially two-thirds, one-third of Oklahoma is within the borders of an Indian reservation. Okay, so that was what the court decided. Um, and uh, it was a struggle. Uh, it was a very hard decision for the court to come to the conclusion, especially because Tulsa was involved, that huge portions of the city of Tulsa were within the reservation of the Muscogee Creek Nation. It took them two terms to get there. They picked up the issue in uh, what was original, originally Royal v. Murphy, Sharp v. Murphy. You had a, um, the big heart of the case actually deals with um, a, a criminal jurisdiction. And so a criminal defendant, um, a public defender, brought uh, a challenge to the conviction of a Native man in both instances that challenged state jurisdiction because if the crime was committed by a native person within Indian country, so within an Indian reservation, um, the state of Oklahoma does not have criminal jurisdiction over that Maggie, case. Is, is Indian country a term that can, that, that can be used? Uh, my 14 year old is gonna to wanna to know that. Uh, is, it, so it, it is a, it is again, and this is going back, it is a, a term that's defined by federal law. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So Sorry. Indian country is a legal okay. is a legal okay. term of art. Okay. We use it loosely to talk about like on power in Indian country. Right. So Indian country was also his, a term that was used historically to talk about um, lands that were held by native people and in which native people had okay. um, sovereignty and jurisdiction. Um, but it has is defined within the criminal statutes as Indian country is where criminal jurisdiction that is um, uh, having, you know, parsed up between uh, the federal government, tribal uh, native nations and the state governments. Right. It's called Indian country. And that is a formal legal term. Okay, thank you for that. I'm sorry for the interruption, but go ahead. No, no, no problem. Keep going. So the Supreme Court struggled endlessly over this case. It initially took up the question of whether or not this treaty, same treaty, um, was uh, uh, abrogated in Sharp v. Murphy, Royale v. Murphy. But that was a case where um, Justice Gorsuch on the Tenth Circuit had worked on it, so he was recused from the original case that the court um, granted cert on. And so it looked, uh, the court had oral arguments on that, the term before it issued uh, McGirt v. Oklahoma, it had oral argument on Sharp v. Murphy and Royale v. Murphy, and that oral argument is incredibly telling. And I think by the time you get to the oral argument on McGirt, which is the court, uh, the the case that the court granted cert on in the next term, identical um, in in all respects save one which is that Justice Gorsuch was not recused in McGirt, which would get you to a 5-4 rather than a 4-4. Four, four. 
Um, they, uh, the oral argument in the original case actually was much more telling and revealing the court's thinking. By the time we get to that second oral argument, um, you end up with uh, a lot more technical positions taken by the justices. But the first round was amazing. Um, and it's an oral argument worth listening to, especially if you want to agree with all of your thoughts about the Supreme Court being um, a place that's all politics all the way down and that value, methodologies value, and ideologies value. do little. Um, values, not politics, is my career ambition, but okay, go ahead. Yes. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so the court, again, it took this other case. Uh, it uh, tried, it asked for rebriefing on very weird issues, technical issues, and the parties, both sides went, yeah, I'm sorry, we can't find a way around this legal <laughs> issue. And so they they kicked it. They took the unusual step of not deciding it in the term that they granted cert on. They kicked the case and then granted cert on a case with identical question, um, identical facts for at least operative facts, um, and, except for the fact that Justice Gorsuch was not recused. And then they decided that case. So we can see here, of course, in the world of legal realism, everyone's going, how legal realist can you get, right? right. We need a Justice Gorsuch to decide this. Yeah. And now we have and him. And so we're going to count it. to five. And write it, too. Please go it. ahead. And, and, and write it. He, they wanted Gorsuch to write oh, it, yeah. of course, because yeah. he's the only one on the court who knows the ins and outs of this. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Exactly. Right. And so, again, I think the the and, and we can get to this when we talk about the distinction between formalism and legal realism. I don't actually disagree with legal realists who believe that we need to think about the world and people when thinking about how law operates. I part ways with that simple theory of legal realism where we have this idea that it's just politics all the way down. Cause I don't even know what that means either. And that the law does no work. I am um, a, a cultural anthropologist by training and by theory. And so I believe that structures work on people. Um, well, we are, and so law works on people and we just need to understand that the, the nuances and dynamics of it. I don't think it's this, this thing that operates in the world like you know, uh, God or some kind of gravity, but it does have a force that we have culturally given it and that we um, seem to respect. And that's the point about McGirt that I'd like to get to. Quick digression, because Mark Tushnet is a one of my, well, my main mentor in constitutional law, and Mark coined the phrase, law is politics all the way down. It is misunderstood by virtually, I'm not saying by you, but by virtually everybody. The way he meant that was not the cliched, it's all Republican, it's all, he meant it much deeper in a much deeper value-oriented way I, I don't want to go into it but 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 i think he has been misunderstood on that point i just wanted to make that point because he's a friend well so i'd like to i'd love to take that up right because okay. the idea of law as politics all the way down without defining politics and this is something that i think marks and mark tushnet's work in particular i've taken issue with in other contexts when he talks about rights as having a complete lack of substance so again it's not looking at culture uh, and so seeing things as all about power and, and uh, value judgments, and this is again what I've written about in the context of McGirt, overlooks these cultural and structural forces that operate within the way humans operate with each other. Um, and so I think that the critical legal studies movement missed the boat when it came to rights because for reasons, again, Patricia Williams and others have written about much more eloquently than I have, uh, rights have been taken up and given meaning by 
communities that have um, uh, Black Americans, um, by women, um, by other social movements that have given content to these words over time, such that this is not Derrida. This is not, you know, words have no meaning except this blur that we give them. Same with power and sovereignty. Native people have picked that up and run with that mantle and given that meaning over time. And so we need to reflect that in our idea that law is not doing any work because again, Native people have made law do work. And that is, I think, the point that I am trying to make in that essay. But we also need to understand how culture operates. Because again, I don't think that the court in McGirt v. Oklahoma, I, when you look at the oral argument, the first one in Sharp v. Murphy, it's not like the, the justices are sitting there going, my deep value says that Native people shouldn't be doing this. They literally just said, well, what would the people of Oklahoma think if they woke up in an Indian reservation, that's just nonsensical. To me, that's not a deep value judgment. And again, like this is the erasure of Native people. It's not a deep value judgment. It's not something that we're all reflecting on and going, I hate Native people. I want them to be gone. It really is just uh, an ideology that's operating on our own consciousness that uh, makes it to where these power structures continue to operate and entrench in the same form. Forms. And so I I can't call that just politics all the way down. I want there to be more there. So, so and I can't just say that law is doing nothing. Um, so Maggie, sorry. I, 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 on that point, on that point, um, I, I think Mark's cliched, the cliche that Mark is, is attributed to Mark was in the context of a much larger project um, that we're not going to do justice to here. But, but, but also I want to say, um, I want to say, I, I agree with you about critical legal studies and I've written that. They, they, their overblown view of the, actually, what I actually wrote was the critical legal studies overblown view of the rule of law in, in terms of uh, how precise it has to be. And Scalia's view of the rule of law were equally wrong. And I tied Scalia to Mark in an article and he was kind enough to read it when I was like a third year law professor and it was kind of a bold thing to say. I still think I'm right about that. Anyway, we, we agree about most of that. So, 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 so back to McGurk. No, and I think, I think again, the, so even beyond the critical legal studies uh, critique of meaning yeah. in the context of these words, I also disagree. And again, I took issue with this in my essay. I take issue with the idea that the legal system is itself the space of subordination. Um, and that is something that they put forward that our only space of liberation is going to be moving away from legal talk entirely of throwing off the idea of the rule of law, which is itself inherently oppressive. If you look at the history of Indian advocacy, of native advocacy, what you see there is the use of the rule of law to liberate the use of the rule of law and those uh, tools of textualism, formalism, things we now see within the conservative legal movement that we see as, as progressives as oppressive and subordinating have been used by Native people um, since before the founding. So arguing from international law principles to force the United States to recognize the sovereignty of Native nations and use treaty law to codify the right. idea of separateness right. and sovereignty and self-governance into United States law. Um, so it, it, the reason why in many ways um, federal Indian law just feels so foreign and sui generis is because the liberal legal theory of rights and courts doesn't even make sense to the way that Native people have built the law around tribal governments and to and essentially enact their own vision of justice it doesn't, it doesn't mesh with 
that story. And it certainly is in complete opposition to the idea that our legal system is itself inherently oppressive. It contradicts that entirely. Just to be, just to be clear, I think based on what I read in your article um, and your work, the rule of law strategy employed by Native Americans has been some, you know, not anywhere near as successful as we'd like it to be. Where it's worked, it's worked on Congress and other political actors. McGirt is one of the few times it ever worked in the Supreme Court. My jurisdiction pretty much begins and ends with the Supreme Court. And so, so I think, you know, as long as we agree that formalism on the Supreme Court isn't, is only a thing when convenient, we can move on. Um, what, what, what is the holding of McGirt and what are the consequences of McGirt? Okay, so the holding on McGirt was that the treaty with the Muscogee Creek Nation um, had not been diminished by Congress over time. And that means that those borders that are outlined in that treaty stand today. And so the Muscogee Creek Nation uh, governs to a certain extent, or at least federal Indian law steps in and structures that area. Um, which also means that uh, with respect to criminal law, which is what was resolved in McGirt, civil law and civil jurisdiction is still an outstanding question, and it's a, it's a big fight right now, um, is that the state of Oklahoma's criminal jurisdiction is diminished, the federal government's criminal jurisdiction is expanded, and the tribal government's criminal jurisdiction is expanded. Um, and those are very, very complex areas, and it's uh, because criminal jurisdiction in Indian country, um, you know, there have been amazing projects done on the complexity of it and the problems that come from that complexity, but it means that that legal structure now governs the portions of Tulsa and Oklahoma that are within the borders of that Indian reservation. Um, what are the implications of that? So they're still getting played out. Um, the implications for those criminal defendants are that they are um, put into federal hands and now tried by the federal government right. and um, held in federal prison. So they're moved from state uh, criminal jurisdiction into federal criminal jurisdiction because their crimes, their crimes were so egregious as to put them under federal jurisdiction rather than uh, tribal jurisdiction. So the reality is the outcome for these particular parties isn't very much. However, the governor of Oklahoma has gone again and again and said, this is this is McGirt. So not COVID, uh, <laughs> not um, economic collapse, um, but uh, McGirt v. Oklahoma <laughs> is the most troubling issue facing the state of Oklahoma today. And he said that over and over and over again. So why are we saying that? So losing a few prisoners might save the Oklahoma, save the state of Oklahoma money because um, right. these are lifetime right. prisoners, um, you know, people on death row. Why are they lamenting this? Um, and the reality is that, and, and this is my guess, of course, is that Governor Stitt has little concern over the, that criminal jurisdiction and has tons of concern over those civil implications, right. which mean not only tax revenues, but mineral rights to um, areas of the state of Oklahoma that might move from the oil and gas industry that fund Governor Stitt's campaigns, and that those uh, mineral rights might move to tribal governments instead, uh, because those lands are tribal lands by treaty law. Um, so again, those are the implications. Um, the strangeness of federal Indian law, and, and this is something that we can talk about with respect to formalism, is that the last say in federal Indian law comes from the political branches because of the structure of federal Indian law. So Congress could write a statute that overrules McGirt, that codifies its holding, that changes its holding, uh, not the holding of the case itself, because that's of course like has Article Three problems, right. 
but they could write a new law that structures a relationship between the tribes and um, the state of Oklahoma, like they've done in other areas. Um, and so the, the uh, tribes in the state of Oklahoma have been negotiating and the federal, the Congress has said, come to, a, come to an agreement like we do in other cases, and we will just stamp it as a statute. Um, and they've been waiting, Congress has, uh, and they've said, well, keep doing it, keep doing it. But the governor has refused to uh, negotiate in good faith because he believes he can overturn McGirt before the Supreme Court because since McGirt was issued in July of last year, the court has changed composition because Ruth Bader Ginsburg has passed away and we have now Justice Barrett. And so instead of negotiating, this is again, lots of legal realism for you. <laughs> the, um, the governor is not negotiating. He is instead hiring um, really fancy law firms and law professors uh, at Harvard to try and get McGirt overturned 12 months after the fact. So I have, a, I have a question about McGirt that's more about constitutional law in general that I don't Please. even know how to deal with. And, 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 um, and I thought about it a lot, and I'm, and I'm wondering if you have any views on this. Um, the reality is, despite his alleged formalism, Justice Scalia was not a formalist. He was a formalist when convenient and not a formalist when not convenient. He almost certainly would not have voted with the liberals in McGirt, which means a lot of things. If Scalia doesn't die, McGirt comes out a different way. I'm not 100% sure how Garland votes on this case, to be honest. I think he would have gone with the libs, but I don't know that for sure. He's a very moderate Dem. I would be surprised. I think it's 50-50 on how Garland would have voted. The only reason Native Americans won this case, I'm not just way way to put it. The only reason McGirt came out the way it did was because Gorsuch is on the court. Without him, it comes out differently almost 90, whether it's Scalia or Garland, I think, maybe. And now you're telling me that they may want to, and I don't, I don't think the court, as, as my legal realism, I don't think the court would want to make Gorsuch that angry where they would reverse it that quickly. Um, but mm -hmm. how do you wrestle, whatever, whatever jurisprudential points we want to take from formalism, rule of law, McGirt, the right, rights versus other things, it's so arbitrary that Scalia died. If he lives three more years, this doesn't happen. How do we deal with that? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't have an answer to that. Yeah, so um, the the answer, I think, within constitutional law, I've taken up recently a project on legislative constitutionalism or trying to think about the, in particular, the unique role of Congress in the making of constitutional law. Because as I said, in federal Indian law, the political branches govern. Right. Um, and there's been a fight with the court as to whether or not Indian law is constitutional law or not, because the court wants to take back its power to have the last say in federal Indian law. You can see why, because yeah. the Congress could just overwrite the court. Um, but talking about the ways in which the political branches are actually better suited to certain constitutional questions like this one. So the big answer is you limit the power of the court, um, whether or not that's like calling something constitutional law or not, or changing our constitutional law doctrine or constitutional law thinking to, to decenter the court within that process, because that's not how our constitutional law has always been done. Um, but the, the, the two takeaways, I think, from McGirt, and this is the big um, takeaway from the, the essay I wrote on McGirt, which was for the Supreme Court review. So I had to focus on a case here, and I don't want it to be misleading where I'm saying, okay, the lesson of McGirt is that the court is now this amazing space to go to try and apply formalism and textualism and rule of law principles. Because again, I've written over and over and elsewhere that this is not the case. The, the court is not the right space 
for dealing with the mitigation uh, mitigation uh, of uh, American colonialism and that constitutional failure. It's not good on those values. And it's not because of our political. Again, this is the problem with calling everything political, because you can start to think, well, the liberals are going to do something and the conservatives are going to do something else. That's not what's operating here, because right. the liberals are Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Justice Ginsburg was not great on Indian law. Neither was Justice Stevens. Justice Gorsuch was great. Justice Thomas has been great. Because again, this is folks who will fall into the rule of law and not pull back from public discourse Thomas when they hit it. But Thomas dissented in McGurk, right? Thomas dissented. So again, Thomas dissented in McGurk because, again, this is the trying to pull back from the public discourse. The court believes, and this is probably legal realism, but again, it's seeing um, more culture and like something more nuanced at work. The court believes that it needs to respond to public opinion because it's, it is a, a court that needs legitimacy. It needs to respond to it, not necessarily um, like those debates over social issues, but what is seen as reasonable and unreasonable. Like the Supreme Court is not going to hold that everyone has to wear pink every single day right. uh, because, you know, not because they can't find that somewhere, but because they they will lose legitimacy in taking that position. And, and even if the law says that, they won't reach that conclusion. All the formalists and textualists won't hit that principle. They'll call it absurdity. They'll call something else, but they won't hit that. And so what you see with the formalists when it comes to, and textualists when it comes to Indian country is it's sort of like saying everybody wears pink. It's too insane. It's too crazy. It's responsive to not public values, but a public worldview that is feels so natural that no one can unroot it. What happened with Justice Gorsuch is that he has, through exposure, through time, through the study of history, through being on the Tenth Circuit, um, he has believed, he has realized that his view of the world is entrenched in this ideology, and he's come to terms with the reality that has uh, federal recognition of over five hundred federally recognized tribes that's just right. and that is all over federal law and so he has come to terms with it whereas the rest of the court has not and so the lesson there is that's how we move people we understand what justice gorsuch is doing and we also understand a new process of looking at the supreme court that isn't just left and right because that doesn't actually predict indian law calling it politics all the way down doesn't predict it, that there is something at work on the court that's beyond politics that is just cultural. Well, and, it's ideology. I, I love that answer, Maggie. And let me just say that I've said and written many times that the only reason same-sex marriage is legal in this country, the I mean, nationally, the only reason is because, well, there's two. Bork and Ginsburg didn't get the seat that Kennedy got. That's one reason. And the second reason, more importantly, as everyone knows, is, is Kennedy had this mentor growing up who was his father's best friend and kind of like a, a family uncle who was a closeted gay man, had to live in incredible indig indignity. And that's what Kennedy wrote in his same-sex marriage cases, that dignity was everything. And the only reason he did that, I think, because he saw with his eyes exposure to, and, and the arbitrariness of that is, is quite scary. And on the other side of the equation, the only reason the Voting Rights Act was struck down, the only reason it was struck down, which I think is probably the most you know devastating decision of the last 10 or 15 years, is because Justice Robert, I'm going to use some bad language here, you know, had a, well, I'm not going to say that, but he's, a, he's been obsessed with the Voting <laughs> Rights Act since 1981, when he was a lawyer for the Department of Justice. When I talk about legal realism, I don't talk about partisan politics. I talk about values, ideology, the, the life well, the life lived. 
and, and, and they're human beings like us. They go to the bathroom, they eat dinner, they watch TV, and they get exposed to things. Right. And so I think if you think about that, if you take that lesson, it's not just politics. Right. It actually is people and institutions, yes. ideologies and culture. Yes. And you expand that out to an institutional analysis. We can start having a conversation about what actually is good in a democracy for constitutional values. Should it be the institution where no one gets exposed to anything, <laughs> where you have quite literally nine people who are so similar in education and background and socioeconomic class, religion, and you take those people and you put them on these questions, or do you take the Congress, which is an institution that was designed to be deeply porous and deeply engaged, um, especially the House, right? And you have a space where they get exposed to things over and over. Who do you think is better on constitutional values questions? Who do you think is better at actually dealing with these big questions of dealing of a plural society and uh, a government that isn't um, uh, that that isn't uh, uh, subordinating groups over time? They actually have to face them. Um, so, you know, not to say that Congress is perfect, and again, it was better in, the, in, in history than it is today, but it, we don't just, because otherwise, if you say it's all politics all the way down, what you have are those same people, those legal realists going, well, the Congress is much worse. It's actually not, I agree. right? No, if you I, see those people, yeah. the Congress is better. The administrative state, my goodness, it's even better, better, because there you have an apparatus that was built to interact with the public. Notice and comment, you know, consultation. I mean, this is a, let's let's talk about that from a constitutional standpoint, rather than saying, okay, well, it's all politics. I think we lose, um, I agree. that's why I guess I, I can't buy into that legal realist notion because everyone's like, well, count to five. And I'm like, in Indian country, you can't count to five. <laughs> all of your fives are gonna be wrong, right? <laughs> and so- yeah. can, can I add to that critique just one layer? Please. What, what uh, this is what I'm kind of, I wrote a book called the Supreme Court is not a court, and why its justices aren't judges. The, the real terror of all of this, not on the ground, but intellectually, is worse than being a institution that is tied to formalism in some kind of non-worldly way, is the fact that they claim to be tied to law and legal rules in that way, when in fact, the whole thesis of my career is the justices don't actually take prior law seriously enough. I know it's a question of degree, but they don't take that prior law seriously enough to justify the label judge. And when I wrote that in 2012, no one agreed with me. And in 2021, <laughs> half of the political world agrees with me. Um, and I don't, I but, but, I, but, but that makes it well, it, it couldn't be more true than in the context of McGirt v. Oklahoma and right. in the context of federal Indian law, because there you had, if you go and look at Sharp v. Murphy's oral argument, you have all these conservative justices, you know, Justice Kavanaugh, who's written on textualism, who is a theorist of textualism, yeah. looks at this and goes, his question is, well, aren't you supposed to analyze texts together and in his <laughs> historical context and because he wants to get to the result where Tulsa is not within an Indian reservation. So you see them abandon entirely their formalist principles because they believe that, but, but this isn't, I guess my point is, is this is not something that isn't in a legal realist system that we can't overcome. What you need is to point out to the Supreme Court 
that it's doing it, shame it and make legitimacy based on applying the rule of law and instead send people, send reformers into the Congress and into the political branches and make them set up, better set up for people to advocate. Because right now we've allowed special interests to lock down those institutions rather than having them open up to advocates and social movements and make the Supreme Court force it back into the space where it's going to get shamed, where actually you say, no, you don't apply the rule of law. We're going to come at you, which is sort of what Roberts is doing. He's kind yes. of catching up yes. a little bit going, well, at least this, um, which is why I think, you know, if McGirt came back, hopefully he would do something. But it, again, like it, the, the legal realist view where it's all politics and we can do nothing, I think is, is short-sighted. Um, and Indian law teaches that there is a space there where we may be able to do something, but we need people to take cases like McGirt and hold the court's feet to the fire. Oral arguments should have happened in Sharp v. Murphy, and people should have shown up and shamed all of those justices so sufficiently that it should have come out the right way on Sharp v. Murphy. It should have been 8-0. Right. We, right. we shouldn't have to deal with right. Justice Gorsuch. Right. Well, um, well, well, he's wonderful, but right. we shouldn't have right. to rely on him. Right. Shaming the court is kind of my full time job. It does make me it does make me think that when Scalia, I just wrote about this two weeks ago, when Scalia at the oral argument in Fisher versus Texas said maybe blacks don't belong at the University of Texas anyway. I just debated Richard Sandra last week. Um, the world went crazy. Dahlia wrote this amazing piece about it, and, and, and the world went crazy, and that should have happened as well. We are running out of time. I could talk to you about this forever. I, I want to do two more things, if, if you'll allow me. I want to just of tell course. you a story about Justice O'Connor. That's going to make you sad. Um, and then I want to get your, your final views on the problem this statement by Justice O'Connor reflects. Um, so let me be clear that I've written a lot of negative things about her jurisprudence, um, some of which I now wish I could take back to some degree. I think she was a remarkable woman. I've never strayed from that. Growing up in the, you know, going to law school in the 50s, not being able to get a job. No one is, I don't know anyone who debates her, the remarkableness of her as a woman. Definitely. As a justice, I think there's a lot of more things to say. She came to Georgia State after she retired, but pretty shortly thereafter. And we had a question and answer, of course, and you know the, the students' questions were filtered. I was doing the filtering. And one of the students asked her, now that you've retired, uh, can you opine on, on one or two areas of the law that you were always afraid of when you were a justice or that you didn't want to be assigned the case if you were, you know, if you were a junior justice or whatever? And of course, she gave the standard answer. The first one was ERISA, which everybody agrees with. Nobody wants to do ERISA. And then she said to a stunned 500-person audience, Native American cases. And there was a gasp almost. And, uh, and I, I was on the stage, and I, and I couldn't believe she said that. And, and what she effectively said, mumbling a little bit, was they're just too hard and technical. But it was the, it, uh, it was the, it was the wave of her hand. The, the, a woman from Arizona. Uh, I know it, she's a Westerner. Yeah, I don't know if you. It was. It was a. Um, well, in one sense, it vindicated all the stuff I'd written about her. But in another sense, it was so sad for my students and our community to hear that at the time. Um, 
Yeah, she's not alone. So um, it's sort of legendary on the court that the um, justices have referred to Indian law cases as peewee cases, as chicken blank cases. Um, it is not an area of law that's seen as um, privileged or elite or something that the justices want to be assigned. There have been some speculation that Justice Thomas has picked this up as an area of specialization because it got kicked to him rather than uh, something where he, um, you know, essentially had an expertise and interest. I don't know if that's right as a speculation, but it's not uncommon. She's not alone in thinking that these are cases that are, you know, they're that uh, litig litigators joke about the court not reading the briefs, uh, merits briefs uh, before or argument coming to the court without any understanding of it. But I want to take a step back a little bit and say, okay, uh, the ERISA is hard because it's technical. I think federal Indian law is, quote, hard. Um, and this is something that uh, the great Phil Fricky he took this position that Indian law is just too complicated and too co counterintuitive and too sui generis because it is in tension with general principles of public law. All of our, uh, all of the ways that we think the world operates in constitutional law and public law that Indian law is so sui generis and operates in tension with those, and we can't ever bring them together because um, it's just its own thing. Indian law is its own thing, and it's so counterintuitive. I don't think that's right. I think our general principles of public law are wrong. They're incomplete. And to the extent that we don't bring in American colonialism, Native nations, Native history, the Constitution's uh, shape that was based on um, the need to acquire Indian lands and to turn that into revenue to pay for all the wars, um, you know, this is this is something that actually has shaped uh, constitutional law, that has shaped American government, especially American federalism. Um, you know, you can't understand. The Constitution and these general principles of federal Indian law, or of, of uh, um, constitutional law, without bringing in Indian law, and so I, I understand the idea that this is intention, and I understand that it just feels otherworldly. But I think that the process needs to happen to improve our public law, to improve our constitutional law by bringing those two things together and changing our presuppositions, changing those things that we take for granted about the way the law operates, especially with respect to the Constitution, and to do it quickly. Because I, I think it's doing us all a disservice. Um, we don't understand our constitutional law. We don't understand the way our institutions function. We don't understand our own history right. without bringing these things together. And um, I would love to, you know, this is a, um, at some point in my career, like I, uh, if I can accomplish anything, I would love to make it a statement of malpractice, legal <laughs> malpractice, to show up and go, I know nothing about this area. And, oh, right. you know, that's right. fine. Because I, I, you wouldn't believe how many times I've presented my work and big, big thinkers about the Constitution go, I don't know anything about this, but this is really interesting, so I'm going to talk about it. And I go, you know, you can't study American federalism. You can't study the history of the Constitution without actually understanding this aspect of it. We went from clinging to the eastern seaboard to sea <laughs> to shining sea to colonization overseas. Um, you can't understand the structure of our government and of our constitution without understanding this. Unlike human slavery, which had federal aspects to its to its form, American colonialism and federal Indian law are the United States Constitution. They are within the jurisdiction of the national government. Right. They shaped its form in a way that this that other forms of constitutional failure have not. 
Um, and so I just, I would love to get to a point where you would never have a justice say, I can't, this is just too hard. Right. Um, well, I want it to be second nature, but I understand, I understand that it's a huge, it's a huge ask. I am, I have no doubt you will be as successful as a human can possibly be in that endeavor in this world. Um, I learned so much in the last week reading your work and, and I want to say I've lobbied for 30 years that law review articles need to be more human um, and, and your work is as human legal work as I've ever seen and I really appreciate that and I learned so much today and we did not get the chance to talk about social movements so maybe you'll come back some, some later time and we can talk about social, social movements. Thank you so much for having me and I'm really glad that we're actually where we found out we're not as far apart and no. we're potentially completely <laughs> on the same page on all these issues so, so that's too. great to hear. Uh, thank you I'm so glad much. you think formalism is important too and I think legal realism is important and there's a space where these conversations and nuanced forms as you've written about can come together. And so I hope we can have more of that in the future. I hope so too, Maggie. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks.